You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. My suggestion is that when Jesus promised an easy yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that the Sermon on the Mount becomes a kind of summation, a synopsis of filling in what that means to live under Jesus' promised easy yoke. Now you might say he redefines easy, It's maybe not easy in the cultural sense that we have come to associate easy with convenient, but it is how life was meant to be lived in a way that's truly livable. And so this Sermon on the Mount becomes in some sense what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It is the summation of what it means to... uh, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is what Jesus meant when he promised, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That there's structure to this abundant life, to this loving your neighbor, to fulfilling the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In some way, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes these, uh, this first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, of which there's five sermon sections. He takes this first one and uses it to summarize the Law and the Prophets, now understood in the light of himself. Now, the authoritative I, which is kind of implicit in the text in the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, absolutely crucial. It is who is speaking this Sermon on the Mount that becomes so important and significant. And yet, as I mentioned last time, the Sermon on the Mount is always cross-cultural. No matter what culture Jesus is speaking into, it is counter-cultural. It was counter-cultural when he first spoke it, and it's counter-cultural today. And in the light of that, how does one understand the Sermon on the Mount in the secular age? In our age, how does it speak into our culture and into our lives? Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, in these few moments with your word open and sisters and brothers in Christ gathered together, we pray for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father and in the name of the Son. Amen. So you have a handout there, and I'll just kind of, uh, this handout represents probably about 20 pages of notes of which you really don't want, but it does sort of give you the sketch of what I'm after here and what I think is significant about the Sermon on the Mount. So a good place to begin with something of the theological structure and scope of the Christian life, living the Christian life can be found here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I like Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of Matthew 11, 28 and 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? 
Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a, a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In the context of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, it's prefaced by, earlier in chapter 4, with a description of that the prophet Isaiah gives us, where Jesus purposely understands a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah says, that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And to me, it's interesting to explore this sermon in the light of post-Galilee darkness, the kind of darkness that we confront and we deal with. And I think Jesus shows us great situational awareness, what it is to speak in his time as well as in ours. And under number two, a quote from James K.A. Smith, uh, a philosopher at Calvin College, we live in a cross-pressured situation suspended between the malaise of imminence and the memory of transcendence. In other words, we do not live today with a sense of the transcendence from a cultural perspective. You may very well live, and I hope you do, with a sense of the transcendent. But generally within the culture, in our spheres of education, politics, science, we live with an imminent frame. It's in this moment, in this space-time world, in a capital M materialistic world. That's the world that we live in. How do we recognize and affirm the difficulty of belief in a world that's framed by imminence, by the immediacy of the present material world? Do we acknowledge that it's difficult to believe, more difficult to believe today maybe than yesterday? When we lived with a frame of reference that understood there was a God, that there was a moral law, like what Matt has just been talking about in terms of uh, C.S. Lewis and the fact that Romans 2.15, that we're hardwired to have a consciousness of right and wrong, whether you're pagan or religious. But increasingly, that's not part of the public rhetoric, the public understanding. T.S. Eliot's quote, where is the life we've lost in the living? Or Soren Kierkegaard, everything goes on as usual, yet there is no longer anyone who believes in it. Those are sobering reflections on the 21st century climate of understanding. Number three, we've gone from everyone believing in God to the courage to face the fact that the universe is without transcendent meaning, without eternal purpose, without supernatural significance. Now, just to illustrate that, Fareed Zakari, uh, the CNN news analyst, uh, just in passing, a couple weeks ago, makes this comment. Nationalism has been around for centuries, but it is now, in a sense, the last doctrine standing. 
The great story of the 20th century was the loss of faith. Now he says that almost axiomatically, almost like a postulate, almost like a given. The great story of the 20th century is the loss of faith. Between the ascendance of science, socialism, and secularism, people lost their trust in the dogmas and duties of religion. But this didn't change the reality that they wanted something they could believe in, something with which they could have a deep emotional bond. Sakari will go on to say that nationalism, and particularly the cause of immigration, that we define ourselves nationalistically and therefore it becomes very important to us as Americans to exclude as well as to define. But we're in a secular age in which people now are kind of inventing what they are going to find meaning in. And they have to come up with something, something rather than what we talked about last week, the kind of nihilistic despair of Friedrich Nietzsche. So you invent your meaning. And the burden of inventing that meaning falls on you, each of us, to come up to, with an articulation of what it is we find meaningful, purposeful, significant. Because the shared understanding of meaning and significance has fallen away. Laurent Dubois, um, in his book, The Language of the Game, I have a son-in-law who's very interested in soccer and he gave me this book uh, for my birthday uh, or else I probably would not have discovered it. <laughs> the language of the game, how do you discover soccer? How do you understand soccer? And in this book, uh, Du Bois uh, takes each of the positions in soccer and develops them in an understanding of the history of the game. But in his chapter on the goalkeeper, the goalie, he talks about Albert Camus, who was a goalie. And in a sense, Camus actually credits his existential philosophy to his experience as a goalie. Um, and this is what uh, Du Bois writes, existential philosophy at its core is about accepting the inevitability of death and the concomitant absurdity of life. So you associate those two things, the inevitability of death and the absurdity of life. Now what are you going to make of it? What are you going to make of your life, given that? And he goes on to describe uh, Camus and the goalie kind of fatalistically having to always pick the ball out of the goal. And each time he does that, it represents his failure or her failure as a goalie. And that's what life is. Picking the goal, ball out of the goal. Recognizing the fact that you failed. But you do it. And you continue to do it. You do it because you're part of this game which is really the absurdity of life. See how the mentality has changed. What I find interesting is that Du Bois, a professor at Duke of uh, history, just says this in passing. It's just a passing comment. And then he picks up the story of the manager in soccer. That we have become so accustomed to 
the general nature of the philosophy of life that is current with us that we can we can hear a, a Farad Zakari, a Farid Zakari, or a Du Bois talk about the absurdity of life and you have to put something in its place. You have to find something to believe in. Now you see, this impacts all of us in some way or form. Sometimes I wonder how many of our churches are made up of traditionalist Christians or conventional Christians, or cultural Christians, but whose real passion, whose real devotion, is that object that they have invented for themselves as having meaning and significance. That's what really drives them. And yet the form of cultural Christianity still lingers. There's a cultural lag that has continued. Another writer along the same line, uh, Andrew DelVanco, in his book, The Real American Dream, a meditation on hope, a Columbia professor, he defines culture to mean the stories and symbols by which we try to hold back the melancholy suspicion that we live in a world without meaning. DelVanco traces the diminution of hope from belief in God to the national ideal of human rights to the lone self. His whole first chapter, his whole first section of his book is deconstructing American Christianity. He presents Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather, some of our early Christian theologians, as superstitious fools. So it's a very slanted, derogatory understanding of Christianity. And yet, at the end of the book, he laments the fact that we really have nothing but the self to believe in. Devastating, in a way. Nothing but the self to believe in. And that's a consumer self. And kind of the last thing standing for the consumer self is making sure your body can stay as healthy as long as it can. And living for the appearance of a physical body that is in shape. The last thing we've really got going for ourselves. Letter D, Charles Taylor, who in a way in his uh, 2007 Templeton lecture, his book, Won the Templeton Prize, kind of kicked a lot of this thinking off for us. Charles Taylor is a Roman Catholic philosopher, a Canadian uh, who is at McGill University. We're now living in a spiritual nova, a kind of galloping pluralism on the spiritual plane. And the question is not, can the word of God keep up? We talked about this last week. The word of God is the word of God. Orthodox, classically orthodox evangelical Christians are going to come down on this particular fact that God indeed has spoken. The Bible that we have is the inspired word of God. That it is what we depend upon for an understanding of truth, understanding of ourselves, an understanding of God. And I take some comfort, I guess analogically, with the fact that the Bible can keep up with galloping pluralism. But I guess the question then is, can we? Can we as his servants keep up with the galloping pluralism, speaking the word of God into our culture 
And Jeremiah comes to mind when he's lamenting the fact that the culture is eroding out from under him, where there is no longer a commitment to Yahweh, a commitment to the Lord God. And the Lord answers his complaint with a challenge. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? And I guess that should be taken as something of a challenge to us. To step up and to actually understand the word of God in relationship to our culture. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. Remember we talked last week about Jesus calmly going up the mountainside, sitting down and speaking with the disciples. And what comes to mind is that quote from Isaiah, bruised reed he shall not break. Jesus is not panicked, depressed. He's not angry. All of which I think becomes a model for us. That in the light of the culture, in the light of what our children and grandchildren are exposed to, what is not needed is panic and anger and frustration. What is needed is a calm, confident, understanding and communication of God's word that is more lived than spoken. It has to be incarnated in our life. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount... Every aspect about the Sermon on the Mount is not theoretical or abstract, but it is personal and it's practical and it's so earthy and down to reality. So I'm just going to quickly kind of walk through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus begins with a character description. They're called the Beatitudes of the Blessing. They are anchored in the Hebrew understanding of the word blessed, which kind of contradicts maybe our secular understanding of happiness. These are not equivalent expressions. Happy is the person who believes in himself because he will realize his goals. Uh, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that can't be framed imminently. That has to be framed transcendently. Uh, blessing, kingdom, and poor in spirit all are defined in the sense of that transcendent order, not just an imminent frame. But what we have in the Beatitudes is a state of grace. Not a means of grace, but a state of grace. This is what grace helps us to be. To understand our utter dependence upon God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who really understand the nature of the grief of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, our own shattered life, our own frailty. We come to terms with that before God. And I don't think you ever graduate from these Beatitudes. I think they are consistently part of our thinking, part of our prayer, part of our devotion. Dennis Sansom teaches philosophy at Sanford University. He just spoke to the Baptist World Alliance on this uh, second Beatitude, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He spoke on it as a critical beatitude. I know some of you have been in his classes. 
uh, here at the Advent, and he has he spoke on it in terms of this being an essential understanding for effective evangelism of the gospel. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when he he made that, I read his paper this week, and uh, I realized that you know if you take all of these eight beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you take all of those eight beatitudes, what a powerful evangelism takes place in the life of the church, in the life of the believer. This is who we are. This is the character description. We have come to terms with our dependence upon God. We are truly sorrowful sorry for our sins, but not only sorry for our sins, but sorry for the sins of the world. We've entered into that mourning. That we really do have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the thing we hunger and thirst for more than anything else. More than fashion, more than sport, more than business success, more than any kind of academic success. That that's what we hunger and thirst for. You can imagine the impact. You cannot be around people that have that kind of hunger and that kind of thirst without being impacted by the gospel. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I mean, these are nonsensical in terms of a 21st century imminent framed reality alone. These require that transcendent frame of mind. Well, the Beatitudes give way, uh, and you know, each... They would be a good Sunday school class taking each beatitude, one a week, and dwelling on it. Those eight beatitudes, these eight blessings, these eight convictions of the soul, this state of grace gives way to you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he describes salt as a preservative. Now, that needs some metaphoric updating because in the 21st century, we look at salt as a condiment to provide a little bit of seasoning. Well, this is not a favor enhancer, as Jesus is using here. This is refrigeration. This is essential for preservation. This is something that in his own time, in his own place, uh, required uh, that in order to keep things uh, healthy. Uh, And light is an illumination. It penetrates the darkness. Uh, And again, in his world, you realize how dependent they were on sunlight, natural light. Uh, what else they had was firelight and oil candles and, and such. What it is for us in our day and age where we just flip a switch and we are illuminated and we have no candles uh, that are necessary. Uh, only ceremonial. Um, So salt and light understood as sort of the last description of this character. The eight Beatitudes, and then salt and light, and the public impact of being salt and light. John Wesley sort of said, Christianity is not a solitary religion. It's a social religion. It's not something that can be kept hidden. It is something that is public. And the idea of, you know, uh, I remember a story of a person in our church who uh, had come to Christ. It was a long journey for him. Went to work 
and shared his story with one of his colleagues. Slowly, carefully, he had prayerfully prepared to share his story, only for his colleague to say, after he had shared his story, oh, I've been a Christian for years. Thank you for telling me. You know, the, the guy had no idea that his colleague was a Christian. Uh, now, something like that is totally impossible in northern Ghana, a place that I've gone to, uh, Virginia and I have gone to maybe five or six times to train pastors. But the cultural change that happens because you come to Christ is so radical that it just can't be hidden. It, it touches every aspect of life. Uh, in terms of work and diet and taboos that are no longer now burdening your life uh, and the freedom that comes from that. Just a radical difference that, that Christ makes. So after the salt and light description, you have Jesus say, and this is something that Matt just emphasized, uh, where Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And unless your righteousness supersedes the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Pharisees would be the standard, the gold standard, for a very careful and meticulous religious life. And so Jesus really is accentuating here a very different kind of evaluation, a heartfelt, deep devotion, understanding, of the impact of grace in one's life. Unless your righteousness supersedes the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you really have no life in you and you don't have the kingdom of God. And he says, I haven't come to abolish this law. I've come to fulfill it. Every aspect of it. So after the Beatitudes and the salt and light, there are seven commands. And the first command is, I haven't come to abolish the law. You may have heard something different by the Pharisees and the scribes, but I haven't come to abolish this law, I've come to fulfill it. And then he outlines the visible righteousness of the Christian community. And this is where the secular age aspect comes into this. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and this is going to be repeated now seven times. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, what they had heard said was the law. But now, you have heard it said could be, as Matt said this morning, whatever. A full range of aspects could be said. Not necessarily the law at all. Whatever you feel like doing, whatever floats your boat. I, I copied some of these Matt's expressions down because I hadn't heard them before. Um, <laughs> whatever. And so how do we then speak into you know, this sixth commandment? You shall not commit murder. That's what you've heard said. But I say to you, if you're bearing anger in your heart, you've already failed that command. See, Jesus drives the truth of the respect and sanctity of life into the very heart of the believer. And you see how selective we are? This week we've been so, uh, the culture has been so happy that Pope Francis has come out against capital punishment. 
But this is the same culture that uh, is really fine for preserving the right of abortion. So it's a very selective kind of understanding of this moral, late modern moral man order uh, that comes into play. Seven commands that give shape. This is what the world is to see. Love instead of hate. Purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity. Honesty instead of dishonesty. Reconciliation instead of retaliation. Prayer instead of revenge. Again, you realize what, if the world saw that, if the world characterized the Christian in these terms, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, that's what the world is to be impressed with. Then, after that, the commands, after these commands, in, ver- in chapter 6, and notice he says, well, let me, uh, if you, I guess this is the observation I want to draw. It, it only makes sense if you've got the text right in front of you, I think, but in verse 16 of chapter 5, in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's an invitation to let your light shine for the glory of God, that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then he has the mind-blowing statement at the end of chapter 5, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. If any of you feel like you've arrived, you only need to read the Sermon on the Mount. But I think this is a good kind of challenge. Those of us who have had really good parents, who have said to ourselves, if I could only be like my parents... Now, I realize that may be rare. Um, I do agree with that, though, personally. If I could only be like my dad, if I could only be like my mother, um, that's a good challenge for me. It doesn't put me down. It doesn't diminish me. It doesn't make it impossible for me. Now, the standard here, though, is our Father, our Heavenly Father. Be perfect, therefore. Be as mature. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you've had the Beatitudes, the salt and light, the commands, which contrast what you've heard said and what now Jesus is saying with the authoritative I. And then the devotions, the spirituality, praying, giving, fasting. You notice in the Christian life, we tend to reverse that. We lead with the spirituality, the praying, the giving, and fasting. Jesus didn't do that. It came after the expression of the visible righteousness, which I find really interesting. Social righteousness, the public impact of salt and light, precedes the description of praying and giving and fasting, which you and I are supposed to do in secret. We do that for our Father to see. We do not do that to make ourselves feel more spiritual or more religious in comparison to others. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have your, you will not have your reward from your Father in heaven. He talks about praying, giving, and fasting. I don't know, I just think this is a rhetorical question not to be responded to, but how many of you grew up with a list of do's and don'ts in your home? A kind of religious do's and don'ts. 
And one of the problems with that kind of moralism is that it often is shortlisted and selective and oftentimes misses the real heart of devotion and obedience. But after the praying and giving and fasting in chapter 6 and verse 19, Jesus begins to describe these do nots. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. And he's going to list four or five do nots. Uh, do not serve two masters. Do not worry. Do not, uh, he has several descriptions of not worrying. Do not judge and do not give to dogs the pearls. Well, these prohibitions, this is what we're not supposed to do, are actually very freeing. And that's what's interesting about them. Now, again, this addressed in the secular age. Uh, there's do not worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to clothe yourself with, uh, look at the flowers of the field, uh, no one's as beautifully attired as they are. Uh, these do nots in Jesus' time dealt with small m materialism. The earthy aspects of feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, but we live today in the culture of large capital M materialism. There are two kinds of materialism that we wrestle with today. Small M materialism and large capital M materialism. In an imminent frame, what else would you have to work on but treasures on earth? In an imminent frame, what else would you have to work on but worrying about your body and your clothes? In the imminent frame where all there is, as Fareed Zakari just assumes, life is absurd, you've got to invent some meaning. Nationalism, in his case, um, So when we address the Sermon on the Mount to large-end materialism and small-end materialism, we realize the challenge that comes to play, not only in the classroom, in the workplace, but in the daily life of the believer. Following the uh, do-nots, the prohibitions, the sermon concludes with a, a list of imperatives. Again, these are th authoritative uh, these are not I wish or I recommend or it'd be really neat if you did this. Uh, there is a sense in which, but again, I find them liberating, fulfilling. It's great to be told to do this, to ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Uh, and the description in verse 12 of chapter 7, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. And this sums up the law and the prophets. It's a beautiful line for taking all the law and the prophets Jesus is summarizing in this Sermon on the Mount and this Sermon on the Mount summarizes sort of the structure and the shape theologically and spiritually and socially and ethically of the Christian life. And then images of choice, the existential choice that comes to all of us. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, 
and only a few find it. Well, I just have a few more minutes. Let me close with a, uh, if you flip the page and go all the way down to six. The modern moral order in a closed world structure is theory oriented. Charles Taylor calls the phenomenon excarnation, the opposite of incarnation, Instead of embodied truth, enfleshed in the forms of character and action, we live in our heads. I tell you, this is one of the things that bothers me the most about my, my work, my job, um, because I spend so much head time, uh, an unusual amount of head time. Nobody else should spend as much head time as I spend, I think. Um, but then I, when I begin to think that way, and I had a friend once who said to me, Doug, it's just words. It's all words. It's just words. And he's still my friend. <laughs> but I realized that what we believe about this word, and thus these words, is something that really gives shape it gives shape to my marriage. It gives shape to my sense of being. It gives shape to my purpose. It gives shape to my significance. It gives shape to my hope. It has given shape to my parenting. It gives shape. It is embodied truth. It's not theory. It's not a list of good ideals, tolerance, consent, mutual benefit, human rights, human flourishing, freedom, fulfillment, democracy, equality. I think all of those are great terms. And I think Christians really support them. But we're talking about a kind of embodied truth here. A truth that shapes not only the soul, but my Monday through Friday work life. And that came across in, uh, in Cameron's book, uh, his book describing really the grief uh, over the loss of his three-year-old son and uh, therefore I have hope and uh, you know he has a class going on right now about this book um, and if I were going to the Advent I would have been in that class not this one but um, some of you just really like this room I know uh, but here's uh, two paragraphs from his book. There are some truths that mean nothing to a person who's gasping for existential air. When tears seem to flow continuously in your life, the nuances of the Trinity or the particulars of a certain end times theory do nothing to comfort. However, other biblical concepts can walk a person back off the metaphorical ledge or the literal ledge, when jumping seemed so reasonable and appealing. One night I sat down, wrote down all of these comforting theological principles as a personal creed, and I began to realize, this is the important line, I began to realize that the Lord had embedded, embedded these individual truths in my heart, 
and collectively constructed a narrative which I could live during the worst. And the capital, uh, he capitalized worst all through um, this book uh, because I think for most um, parents, the loss of a child ranks up there with the worst. This narrative gave me hope. This is what I think the Sermon on the Mount gives us. Embedded truth. Embodied truth. Truth that permeates all of life. That really does impact us personally, practically, socially, individually, in every aspect. We live not in an imminent frame, but in a transcendent frame. In which the one who speaks this sermon actually incarnated. God incarnate so that we could incarnate truth. I think the Sermon's Mount pretty good, don't you? <laughs> uh, we really don't... Do we have time? question or two? I guess more and more I, uh, I guess you'd say, doubt the truth of the world that I... Prince of this world is the devil, so I more and more uh, stop and think before I speak, move, do whatever. There was a poll out that Christianity, faithful people aren't managing, they're just changing their description, maybe in hiding from the world, persecution, but uh, everywhere I go, I see faith exploding. might be the communities I hang out with, but I see no diminishing in, in the faith, faithfulness. Uh, I do see more attacks, but I see a strengthening, I guess, in the faith. One of the things I'll pick up with next week, I've missed it and uh, bypassed it this week because I wanted to just give an overview of the sermon, uh, is the fact that I think the world is much more with us than we may realize shaping our perspectives and conditioning our responses. Um, And so while the culture has shifted and we still believe in the creed, we still own these convictions, yet uh, we may feel our hearts on fire for Jesus, but we have no idea how we're conforming to the world in the process. So that's something we'll pick up with next time. Jane? Just one thought, especially this last line, the source of this ideal moral order is and the self is a terrible taskmaster. And that, what you've given us, is really a, a way to speak into um, the burden that people carry when, they really, when they're trying to turn to self. Well, the challenge is you know, these great concepts, these great ideals, tolerance, uh, social justice, human flourishing, um, mutual benefit, all of these terms in this imminental frame have no foundation. There's no source. In a world that is nature alone, capital M materialism, a secular age, there's no foundation for these. And that's what Nietzsche saw so clearly. Then it is a dog-eat-dog world. There's only the exploiter and the exploited. There's two kinds of people. Which do you want to be? And And yet we keep backing off from that and that's where, you know, okay, nationalism will be our thing. Or sports will be our thing. Um, 
And at the bottom of that is yourself deciding what the thing is. And that uh, it can be either a taskmaster or you know, the hedonistic excess that is no bother. Well, we're going to have to end it. Thank you. Uh, let, let me just pray. Lord God, in this week as we go out into it, may your word to us be that which governs, controls, guides, and comforts, and challenges. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.